0: If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can either open it or turn it on if you've got a smartphone or any device that carries your Bible, I encourage you to go to the book called 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's about halfway through the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to look specifically at verses 12 to tw- 28, but I'm going to reference all of the different verses in this chapter that comprise 58 verses. I wanted you to see that video because I actually think if you've been watching television, two seasons are very fascinating for me to get a hold of pop culture. One is Easter and one is Christmas, and I love the way to watch the way news networks or movies or television shows or documentaries portray Jesus and or Christianity. And obviously, for us in our Christian faith, we have to admit, I mean, it's Easter Sunday. Everything we cling to, everything we say we believe rises and falls on the resurrection. I mean, it really does. We got to own that. We can't be dismissive of it. We can't make it seem like, oh, it's not a big claim. It's a massive claim. Do we believe in the resurrection? And so I wanted to entertain the idea a little bit this morning is what if the resurrection really didn't happen? What if it is all a lie? What if all of our singing and our celebration and our creeds and our ordinances, what if? What does that mean? And here's the reason I ask because I believe in the church, one of the problems that we have as a church people, and this is where I want to talk to you that we claim to be Christians, I want to get very specific and very honest on this Easter Sunday, is why does there seem to be such a disconnect between what we say we believe and then how we act in real life? And I actually think we give ammunition to a doubting questioning skeptical cynical world because they look at the modern church of today and they go listen you guys talk a good game and you got great buildings and man you can really splinter up and look and look good and dress up and clean up and make your liturgy look good and your mu-. but really when i meet you monday to saturday like you're a totally different dude or dudette i was thinking this past week about the movie that's often shown at christmas time but it's called a wonderful life right Jimmy Stewart, have you ever really thought about the premise of that, where Jimmy's life has just fallen apart and he, he finally, and early on in the movie, he's at a bridge and he's contemplating ending his life. And someone comes along and wants to show him, here's what your life or here's what the world would look like if you weren't in it. And I often wonder if maybe we need to do that. What would a world without Jesus' resurrection in it look like? What would it mean? What would be the ramifications? And let me tell you that this has happened in the past and still is ongoing in a thing called, I don't know if you know about this or have heard of it, called the Jesus Seminar. It was organized under the auspices of this thing called the West Star Institute to renew the quest of the historical Jesus and to report to the world the results of its research by this handful of gospel specialists. It was actually, its inception was in 1985 when 30 scholars took up the challenge and eventually more than 200 professionally trained specialists, and they called themselves fellows, joined the group. This seminar, even to this day, although under a different name, meets twice a year to debate technical papers that have been prepared and circulated in advance. And at the close of debate on each agenda item, the fellows of the seminar vote, and they use colored beads, black or white ones, to indicate the degree of authenticity of Jesus' words or deeds. They have basically pronounced themselves the judges of the truthfulness of Jesus. (laughs) The renewed search began with the first meeting of the Jesus Seminar in March of 1985 when the founder, a gentleman by the name of Robert Funk, addressed the assembled scholars in Berkeley, California, and here's what he said. We are about to embark on a momentous enterprise. We're going to inquire simply but rigorously after the voice of Jesus, after what he really said in this process. We will be asking a question that borders the sacred, that even abuts blasphemy for many in our society. And as a consequence, the course we shall follow may prove hazardous. We may well provoke hostility, We will set out in spite of the dangers because we are professionals and because the issue of Jesus is there to be faced as much as Mount Everest confronts the team of climbers. At the end of this first initial meeting, here were the conclusions of Mr. Funk. Jesus did not ask us to believe that his death was a blood sacrifice and that he was going to die for our sins. (coughs) Wipe it away. Secondly, Jesus did not ask us to believe that He was the Messiah. He certainly never suggested that He was the second person to the Trinity. In fact, He rarely referred to Himself at all. Thirdly, Jesus did not call upon people to repent or fast or observe the Sabbath. He did not threaten with hell or promise heaven. Jesus did not ask us to believe that He would rise from the dead. Jesus did not ask us to believe that he was born of a virgin. Jesus did not regard Scripture as infallible or even inspired. These were the conclusions of the professionals. Now, I can't stand here and not tell you in all honesty and transparency that I think Mr. Funk is categorically and fundamentally wrong in both his assertions and his conclusions. In fact, when I have read things that he has written, I really want to send him a letter and go, Dude, are you reading the same Bible I'm reading? Because I don't know how you come to these conclusions. But I ask you again here this morning, What if it's all a lie? What would the world look like? What if Jesus was just a man? What if he never rose from the dead? What would it all mean? Robert Funk would like to put Christ into two categories. You've got the Christ of history and the Christ of faith. So he basically says, all right, for those weak-minded ones who need a Jesus to cling to, they have the Christ of faith. But then they don't deal with the reality of the Christ of history. That's his premise. But how can that be? Joshua and Elijah both asked Israel to choose whom they believe and then serve him, right? Joshua said in his book, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah on the, on the Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal said, choose you this day who's real. All the gods of the world or God Jehovah. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so I really want to invite you on this morning to come with me on this beautiful Easter morning. And for just a few moments, let's consider in a wonderful life kind of way, what would the world without the resurrection look like? So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want to start in verse 12. Now, to set this up, a group of Christians, a church, the Corinthian church, have written to Paul the apostle, and they have basically said, um, what if the resurrection isn't real? They ask him that question. And so from verse 1 to 11, he builds the case for why. But then he says, okay, let's theorize if it's not. And so he says this in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he poses, here's the the hypothesis, here's the problem. And then he says, okay, so let me go with the negative. But if there is no resurrection of the dead Then those who also have fallen asleep means those who have already died in Christ. They've perished. They're gone. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. Now, I can't believe he says this. We are of all people most to be pitied. That's the conclusion of a world without the resurrection. So let me just walk you through this. I'm a points kind of guy, so if you want to take notes, and hopefully they'll be on the screen. So the first thing you got, if you got no resurrection, then Jesus is dead. I mean, that's just, you got you to follow your logic through. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus is dead. The first consequence of denying the resurrection is Christ is still in the grave. He's still there. In other words, he's the only a man just like any other man. And so why would we preach on someone who's merely a man? I really do have better things to do with my time. The critics are right. Christianity is simply one religion out of many. So you know what, world? At the 7 billion of us now, pick which one does it for you to make you a better person. Because indeed, if there is no resurrection, Jesus Christ is absolutely nothing and no better or no different than Muhammad or Confucius or Buddha. And so I would submit again, why worship a guy who's dead? If Jesus has not been raised, at best you can admire him. Maybe if you think he's a good example, you can try and model his lifestyle and try and think like he did. But I mean, come off it. In the 21st century, worship a dead guy? Aren't we more evolved than that? That's right, there you go. My my contention would be don't bother. Build churches in his name? Gather and sing the way we did about? Why? Why would you do that? Which leads Paul to the obvious next conclusion. Did you get it in these verses? If there is no resurrection, then I stand before you and all the other pastors or ministers or whoever you might have interacted with of the world should stop preaching. I mean, that's what he says, right? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. You might just as well drop your church membership. It's no good. There's no reason to go to church or to hear a sermon if Christ is not raised from the dead. And Paul goes even further. He says, "Both your faith, but your faith is also vain." And that word "vain" there means groundless. You've got nothing to anchor to. So it basically, says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, faith in a dead Savior is both preposterous and, quite frankly, pathetic. If there is no resurrection. For those of you that are Christians and know your Bible, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 is actually the hall of fools. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, you get this list of, by faith, Moses did this, and by faith, Abraham did this, and by faith, Noah did this, and by faith, David did this, and on and on and on it goes. But if there's only a dead Jesus, they're not heroes, they're fools. Everyone, and I do mean Everyone you've ever read about in your Bible has lived for nothing. And back a few years ago, Mr. Dan Brown, who wrote out the movie The Da Vinci Code, is absolutely right with that infamous line in the movie, Christianity is the biggest hoax the world has ever known. That's right in the movie. If we accept the Jesus Seminar notion or the Dan Brown notion that the historical Jesus was simply a peasant, later revered and deified, then what are we left with? I'll tell you what we're left with. Can I show them that uh, Time Magazine one, Jordan? Time Magazine aptly put this on their cover. I want you to see this. This was from 1966. Is God dead? Doesn't take some 40-odd years later, in 2017, is truth dead? And doesn't that make sense to me? I'm I'm, I'm quite comfortable with time putting, because if God's dead, then truth's dead. Because who defines truth? Who determines what truth is? We're all our own little God. There's seven billion little gods running around, and we're all able to define for ourselves what truth is. Well, let me tell you, put too many of them in a room for a prolonged period of time, and there will be a battle of the gods. Happens every time. Jesus is so stripped down that he becomes the Christian dummy of the first century. In fact, what's amazingly ironic and tragic is most would say the community, the church in the modern era, was more brilliant brilliant than the leader. And I find this funny because even French philosophers, Renan, the French skeptic, said it would take a Jesus to forge a Jesus. Isn't that ironic? Further, if Jesus was such a regular guy, let me submit this. Why was he crucified in the first place? Since crucifixion by the Romans was used only for deviants and malcontents and political revolutionaries like Barabbas, if you read the Passion, what did this simple peasant who healed everybody do to create such a stir? Well, he claimed to be God. That'll get you noticed. Worse, still Paul says that if there is no resurrection, all preachers are not only doing it in vain, he says they're all liars. All the apostles were liars if Christ is not risen. Every one of these men was a false Witness if Christ is still in the grave. But consider how many times these men have been told by Jesus that he must go to Jerusalem, be betrayed, be crucified, and then he would rise from the dead. Remember I told you last week, he told them four times in the Gospel of Matthew alone. So right there, Mr. Funk is wrong. Jesus says four times just in Matthew that he's going to go die and rise again for sin. (laughs) But consider this. Have you ever noticed that men do not die for that which they know to be a lie? Now think that through. Now I'm not saying that men do not die for a lie, but they think it is truth. For instance, millions of men died for Hitler because they believed in him. They honestly believed what he said was truth. The apostles testified that they saw the risen Christ and they were willing to die for that declaration. Now, I'll let you decide whether they were right or wrong, but I will say again, men don't die for what they know is a lie. Now, Paul gets personal in verse 17 of our passage, because if there is no resurrection, this is extremely personal, he says, then we are still in our sins. Notice what he says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Since the resurrection of Christ is essential to our justification, that's why Paul says what he does in Romans 4.25, he says Christ who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Then the denial of it negates the forgiveness of sin. Genesis 3.15 where God tells Adam and Eve in the garden that one day Eve would bear a son and that through, through her a, a Messiah would come and that Satan would bruise his heel but that this Messiah would crush Satan's head. That's not true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, in fact, sin and Satan won. That's your result. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then folks, the obvious is the obvious. Then he's still dead and sin remains. That means when we die, we stay dead and we stay damned. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And that is a constant for all of eternity. Even the world has expressions for like this. What are the only two constants of the world? Death and taxes. Right? The world even knows this. If Christ is not raised, then his death was simply tragic. And you might, if you believe in him, unfair. But it didn't have a purpose. Faith in him is misplaced. It's even worthless. Your sins, your sinfulness, the, the lack of power you have to make yourself a better person. And there's no such thing as forgiveness, and we forever sit under the wrath of a holy God. But there's more. If there is no resurrection, then all who have died are gone. All who have died are gone. Have you got that? He says those who have already fallen asleep are just dead. They're gone. Now, let me, let me get really, real and personal here on this one, because I love this. I, I read this about Joseph A. Parker. He was once accused of being too much about the Bible and not enough about science at the time, and he, and he stood up before a group of people in a service one day that they were there, and he said, some have found fault with me. They say I'm old-fashioned and out of date, and this was shortly after one of the wars. He says, I'm accused of always quoting the Bible, and people would say to me, why not turn to science this morning? But in the room, there was this poor widow who had lost her only son in the war and had just gotten her notice from the corporal that delivered the news. So he looked out at the audience and says, this woman wants to know if she will see her son again or if there's any hope. Shall science give her the answer? If so, I will put my Bible away. And so he took his Bible and he put it on the seat behind him. And he said, will this woman see her son again? What does science say? And just like here now, there was a long quietness. Then he said, we are waiting for an answer. This woman is anxious. Someone tell her what science says to give her comfort. And there was a long pause. And he cried out, this woman's heart is breaking. Science must speak. Does it have nothing to say? <laughs> Then he gently picked up his Bible. And as it was there, he reverently reached back and he opened it up and he quoted out of the New Testament. He said, Where Paul quotes, he says, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And he says, The dead shall arise, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And he quotes the end of 1 Corinthians 15 and he says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And then he quotes Revelation, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And then closing his Bible and patting it affectionately, he said, if it's all the same to you, my dear audience, I will stick to my Bible. You see, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then David lied back in Psalm 116, a verse I often hear when elderly people pass away. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why is it precious if they're just dead? It's just factual. Job was delusional when he said, I know my Redeemer lives and I shall see God. Why would he say that? Folks, if there is no resurrection, and here's how he culminates it, then we are the most pitiful people in the world. That's a great way to win friends and influence people, isn't it? Hey, listen, love your religion. We're pitiful. (laughs) He says, if Christians have no hope for the future then the pagans could justifiably consider Christians fools since believers would have suffered for nothing. Which, by the way, is what Paul says. He says Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews and is basically hilarious to the Greeks, foolishness to the Greeks. Paul argued that if Christ was not risen from the dead, all believers throughout history would have believed for nothing, lived for nothing, and died for nothing. Full stop. He is clearly, in this passage, thinking of himself and others. Think about who is, makes up that Bible. Th- such as Stephen, who endured persecution and martyrdom on the belief that Christ had risen from the dead. Why does Paul say believers should be pitied if there's only earthly value to Christianity? Well, you've got to understand the background. In Paul's day, being a Christian often brought persecution, ostracism from your family, and other social and economic problems. Often you couldn't own a business. You couldn't operate because if you weren't willing to throw a pinch of incense on the altar to whoever the reigning Caesar was, then you weren't, didn't have access to the colonnades and business areas. You had to worship him, and Christians wouldn't. So they were stuck out into the outer gates and outside the city, and they had to create their own commerce. Believers gave up the sensuous joys of worldliness. There were few tangible benefits from being a Christian. It would not have gotten you a step up the ladder. It wouldn't give you a greater uh, idea of of things. In fact, you even forfeited the loss of spiritual blessings. (coughs) Excuse me. Without the resurrection and the salvation and blessing it brings, Christianity would be pointless and pitiable. Pitiable. There we go. Got to get that right. Without direction, we have no Savior, no forgiveness, no gospel, no meaningful faith, no life, and no hope of any of those such things. Glad you came to Calvary for Easter Sunday morning now, or what? (laughs) To have hoped in Christ in this life only, to be teach and preach and suffer and (coughs) sacrifice, and then work entirely for nothing. (laughs) Why would anybody do this? If Christ is still dead, then only can He not help us in regard to the life to come. He can't help us in this life either. So quite frankly, then praying is useless. If He cannot grant us eternal life, He cannot improve your earthly life. If it really is about you getting as much as you can out of life, and if John Jack Nicholson and and Helen Hunt were right in that movie, this is as good as it gets, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And herein lies the problem, again, I would submit, for professing Christians. See, the reason I even have to bring this up is because too many Christians talk a good game, but we live out, but we don't live out the realities of what we claim. See, we claim to be a supernatural people, but we live very naturally. A Christian has no Savior but Christ no Redeemer but Christ, no Lord but Christ. Therefore, if Christ isn't raised and He's not alive, then our Christian life is lifeless. We would do nothing and deserve nothing but the pity reserved for fools. But let me show you starting now a contrast. Let me turn the page. I have this book in my library. It's one of my favorite books to read. It's called The Last Words of Saints and Sinners. I cannot encourage you enough to buy this book or books like it. This has been more of an eye opener for me in my own uh, struggle and wrestling with Christianity than anything. And many folks in there make bold predictions about life when life is young or life is going well. And one of my favorite quotes in here is Gandhi. Gandhi, early in his life, about 20-odd years before he died, wrote down this, I must tell you in all humanity that Hinduism as I know it entirely satisfies my soul, fills my whole being, and I find a solace in the teachings of it that I miss even in the Sermon on the Mount. And this was a guy who would say Jesus was a pretty good guy. But just before his death, he writes this, My days are numbered I'm not likely to live much longer, maybe a year. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in the sloth of despond. All about me is darkness. Will somebody pray that I can see light? Now contrast that with this guy from Chicago named Ira Sankey. He was D.L. Moody's song director. And this is what he wrote just before he died. I believe in him who said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I believe in the Son of God with all my soul, might, mind, and strength, and am therefore saved by the word of one who cannot lie. I have only a little longer, I'm sorry, he says, I have only a little longer weary tossing on the billows foam, only a little longer of earthly darkness, and then the sunshine of the Father's throne. So sure am I of meeting in heaven those of my friends who are following the Lamb that I send them this final message that God is love, good night, good night. Now there's a contrast. See, I believe a world without a resurrection is a world without hope. A world without the resurrection is a world really without faith. A world without the resurrection is a world without love. A world without the resurrection and Time Magazine got it right would mean God is dead. Hmm. But notice verse 20 of our passage. Everything changes with this one. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So it has. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So listen to me. Are you ready? Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. All right. Some of you are half not Baptist. All right. So let me just run through this very quickly. What does it mean? If there is a resurrection, so we've looked at what the world looks like without one. What does it look like with one? Then Jesus is alive. He is alive, Revelation 1. When I saw him, John says, in AD 95, okay, at least 60 years after his death and resurrection and ascension, John writes, I saw him and I fell at his feet as though dead, but he had in his right hand on me, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. And here's Jesus' words, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. If Jesus is alive, I should keep preaching because what I'm preaching is true. So there is purpose to my life because the resurrection is the cornerstone of the gospel. It's been the target of Satan's greatest attacks against the church. If there is no resurrection, the life-giving power of the gospel is eliminated. The deity of Christ is eliminated. Salvation is eliminated. I love this. I found this from Charles Spurgeon. This lady wrote him. They were doing this Q&A. And so this lady says, Dear sirs, Our preacher said on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Sincerely bewildered. That's why I showed you that video, Seven Miles. Spurgeon writes back this. Dear bewildered, beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his side, put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours, and then see what happens. Sincerely, Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) (laughs) Paul said, not once, not twice, but three times, he was compelled to preach. Why? Because he personally experienced the reality of a risen Savior. I'm not preaching in what I hope is real. I preach this because I believe it's real. Number three, because Jesus rose, our sin, my sin is taken care of and forgiven. Jesus did rise, which means forgiveness and grace and mercy are real and they're available. Acts chapter 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Why? God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Peter said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I've said this before. I'll say it for those who believe in Jesus, if I could get everybody to get up every morning, look in a mirror and go, I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I guarantee you your day goes better. Number four, those who have died in Christ are alive and will be raised. You see, that's what I love. Deanna, this is her last Sunday with us. She's heading off to the Yukon, which is not the end of the world, but you can see it from there, okay? She's going there. Now, we've made a deal. She signed a contract that she's only allowed to go for a year and then she's got to come back, okay? But you know what? She's my sister in Christ. So if Deanna's leaving, I will not say goodbye to Deanna. I'll say, see you later. Because if I die or she die, we're still going to see each other again. When I buried my grandmother and I buried my grandfather and I stood over that open grave, I did not say goodbye, Pop. I said, I'll see you again soon, Pop. Because my grandfather believed in Jesus. He trusted in Him. And this is the hope we have. (laughs) We are also not hopeless, but hopeful and hope filled. Some time ago, a preacher was speaking about the resurrection at devotions, and he was telling the story of the crucifixion to his little four-year-old boy. And as he got onto the story, his little fellow looked up at him with this very sad expression, if you've ever read, to little ones in bed. And this little fellow said, Dad. Did Jesus die? Yes, his father said he died on the cross. Oh, said the little fella. I guess he can't love me now then. Hmm. The father wrote in his diary a telling of this incident. How I realized the value of the resurrection at that moment. And what a joy it was to be able to say to my son. He can love you now. Because he rose again from the dead on the third day, and he lives and loves now and forever. (laughs) Hallelujah. Christ has risen from the dead. Amen. That means 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 12, if you read it. He says, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, and I delivered these things to you. And you can see it down at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, down in verses 50 to 58. When that's where that passage, oh, death, where is thy thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? This is why they all scream hope and faith and love and access to God. That old Texas preacher J. Vernon McGee writes, Paul states that the resurrection is part of the gospel. In fact, there is no gospel without it. Dr. Machen says Christianity does not rest on a set of ideas or creeds, but on facts. The gospel is not the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount the gospel is a series of facts concerning a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So here's the question on Easter Sunday morning. Do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? That's your question. Because how you answer that question really does determine everything. I'll let you, you can have it. A world without a resurrected Jesus is so dismal and despairing, then the world is right. As I said earlier, eat, drink, and be merry, for the more you die. As I said, Hollywood is right. This is as good as it gets. So get while they're getting's good. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then everything's changed for everyone here today. Tim Keller puts it like this. All claims are exclusive. The gospel is an exclusive truth, but here's the good news. It's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. And they are Christians, do you live your life today like you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Does it mean something at work or in the classroom, on your job? Does that fact profoundly affect you? According to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 12, look at this. According to these verses, the church's very existence proves the resurrection in verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15, the scriptures themselves proclaim it. I put something on my Facebook page this week, and a dear, dear friend that I've been praying for lives in Ontario, she challenged me about it. She said, you're just saying the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. Yep. (laughs) Because if the Bible's only true if somebody else says it's true, then what I'm saying is that somebody else has all the authority. The Bible's true because that's where the authority is found. His passion was thus vindicated by the resurrection. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe, notice this, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But if you really do want more, in verses 5, 6, and 7 of 1 Corinthians 15, notice the list of eyewitnesses. Mary Magdalene says she saw the resurrected Jesus in John 20. Multiple other women in Matthew 28, 8 to 10. In fact, don't miss this. In a first century culture where women were not even allowed to testify in court, Jesus chooses to allow all these women to say, go testify of me. All right, yeah, there's a woman saying, so man, there you go right there, right? <laughs> Peter in Luke 24, the other disciples, even without Thomas. Then there was the disciples that included Thomas at his ascension in Luke 24 and Acts 1. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 in Galilee. They said, we've said the disciples were gathered according to 1 Corinthians 15, 500 people Psalm. Then James, the half-brother of Christ and his disciples. And then there's the apostle Paul himself in verses 8 to 10. Paul says, I saw him in Acts chapter 9, and in Galatians chapter 1. And so what is the ramifications of a resurrected Jesus? Number five, the common message preached by them all is consistent with Scripture. Look at what he says in verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. It's just one message. John Piper was one of my favorite modern writers, said, When the Bible says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins. The point is not that the resurrection is the price paid for our sins. The point is that the resurrection proves that the death of Jesus is an all-sufficient price. So if it did not happen, then God did not vindicate His sin-bearing achievement and we are still in our sins. But in fact, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, according to Romans 6.4. Now, let me even tell you about some skeptics. Ian Ballalock, professor of classic classics at Auckland University, writes, I claim to be an historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. Even Clark Pinnock, who would claim to be a Christian liberal... He says this, There exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based on an irrational bias. And then A.N. Sherwin-White, a classic Roman historian, says, For the New Testament of Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. (laughs) See, the gospel does not tell us something that we must do. Don't leave here and think that. The gospel tells us what Jesus Christ has already done. Okay? He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day. Now, I know there are people in the world, and this is why I wanted to preach this, that say, don't believe in that fairy tale hereafter religion. I want something a here and now. But I'll say to you that Jesus Christ is both a here and now and a hereafter. So I submit that the resurrection is true. And thus the gospel is to be believed for what it proclaims and what it offers. And you must believe in it. What is that, gospel, friends? It's the good news that Christ died. In fact, he came. He lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He died the death that you and I deserved. He was buried in a grave that wasn't his own, and he rose again the third day, and he didn't vanish or disappear. He rose again. The tomb is empty. Jesus Christ is alive today. These are the historical facts. The gospel is not a theory. It's not an idea. It's not a religion. The gospel consists of objective facts. Huh. It tells us in verse 1, the Corinthians received it. And in verse 11, that they believed it. And how do you do that? Remember, I'm preaching through the gospel of John. John chapter 1, he came unto his own and, he, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. To receive Christ means to believe, not believe about him, to believe in him. A lot of the world believes about Jesus, but do you believe in him? Again, John Piper says the resurrection of Jesus is God's gift and proof that his death was completely successful in blotting out the sins of his people and removing the wrath of God. You can see this in the word, therefore, Christ was obedient on the death, even death on the cross, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him. And so from the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. And when he rose again, God cried back, it is finished indeed. And We have promises like Romans 6, 5 that says, if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness be in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans 8.11, but the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. 2 Corinthians 2, it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we also shall live with him. So we can say, as John and I were talking earlier, Maranatha, come our Savior today. Christians, serve the Savior today for your labor is not in vain. Christ is risen and we shall live. And I end with this. A few years ago, a submarine for the U.S. Navy sank off of Provincetown. As soon as possible, divers descended, and they walked about the disabled ship endeavoring to find signs of life because the crew was still trapped inside. At last, after searching and almost ready to give up hope, on the last day of searching, they heard this gentle tapping. And listening intently, they recognized the dots and dashes of the Morse code. And here's the words that they spelled out. Is there hope? Is that not the constant cry of humanity? And Easter is the answer to that cry. We are all helpless. But you don't have to be hopeless. Not with Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the center of the Christian faith. Because Christ rose from the dead as he promised, we know that he is God. Because he rose, he lives and he ministers today. Because he rose, he defeated death. And we will also be raised with him. To quote S.M. Lockridge, that's my king. That's my king. Is he yours? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity on this Easter Sunday to just, with all the passion I can muster, make much of you. Lord, I pray for our friends and visitors here this morning, one, that they have felt comfortable, two, that they have felt welcome. But Lord, I do pray that your spirit would speak to them and that they would know that they're not alone And that we're not better, but you're awesome. That everything we have done today is to give praise to a living Savior who rose from the dead. And Lord, humanity would say, that's impossible. And I would fight right back. Yes, it is. Unless God did it. I thank you for the evidences of why witnesses and your word and historical documents. But more than anything, Lord, I give testimony before everybody here and before you. The reason I believe in you is because you have saved me. You've forgiven me. Lord, I was running, pretending. Lord, I was living life like everybody else lives life, trying to make sense of it. And yet, Lord, in the quietness of night, often when I would go to sleep and I would try and make sense out of life. The still, small, gentle voice of Jesus whispered, I love you. And I have died for you. So, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you like that or has questions about you or has inquiries or doubts or anything, Lord, may may they just feel freedom to come and talk. But, God, I do pray for us as Christians that we would not act like we're Christians. We would be them. Lord, may we not pretend. Lord, may we show this world good, bad, ugly, or indifferent. That Jesus Christ is real. Lord, I love this city. I love this province. I love the people of it. All of the people of it. It makes this city so unique. My only prayer and request is not that we would show off, but that you would show up. And that people in this city would know you. This is our creed. In Jesus' name and all God's people say it.